All right. Thank you. If you haven't already, uh, I hope you have your Bibles open to Acts 10. Um, we are in Acts 10, and uh, we're going to have a Bible study today. And so you need to have it open, spread open here before you so you can see it. And so whether it's whether you have that in a, on a pad or on your phone or you have one of these kind of old books, uh, well, we get that open there before you. Um, and as you're doing that, I want to just tell you about one of the uh, most well-known stories of the Old Testament is about this prophet named Jonah. Uh, if you remember the story, the most powerful empire in the world at the time was the Assyrian Empire. And the capital city of the empire was located in the city of Nineveh. And so the Lord told Jonah to get up and go to Nineveh and to deliver a message to the people there. Well, Jonah couldn't stand the Ninevites. And he didn't want to go. He didn't want to share God's message with the filthy, unclean Gentiles. And so, if you remember, he, he disobeyed, and he took off in the wrong direction. Interestingly, if you recall, he went to the seaport of Joppa. And there he found a ship that was getting ready to head out, and he bought a ticket, went on board, hoping to go all the way across the Mediterranean Sea to Tarshish, as far away from Nineveh as he could get. Well, the Lord had other plans for Jonah, and with a reminder and encouragement of a big fish, uh, Jonah would make that long journey to the capital city of Nineveh, where he would quite reluctantly deliver the Lord's message to the Gentiles. Well, some 800 years later, the most powerful empire in the world at this time is no longer the Assyrian Empire, but it's the Roman Empire. And the capital of the Roman Empire is located in the capital city of Rome. And the book of Acts is about the risen Lord Jesus through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, empowering his disciples to go out from Jerusalem with a message from the Lord to the filthy, unclean Gentiles. And by the end of the book, Acts 28... Paul will even make the long journey to the capital city of Rome, to the very heart of the Roman Empire, to deliver the Lord's message. But that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. This morning, we're in Acts chapter 10. And interestingly, we find ourselves at the seaport of Joppa, the same place where Jonah famously ran away in order to avoid having to preach to the Gentiles. It's here in Joppa on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house where Peter will receive a vision to go and preach to the Gentiles. How will Peter respond? Will he obey the Lord or will he be like a Jonah 2.0? And perhaps go down to the port and get on a boat, head for Tarshish. Well, let's take a look and see how he responds. 
Um, I've shared this a couple of times already as we've looked here in Acts, but Acts 9 and 10 are at the very heart of this book, and they're about conversion. Chapter 9 is about the conversion of Saul, who will become known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, Chapter 10 is about the conversion of Cornelius, who will become known as the first Gentile convert. And Luke thinks that Saul's conversion is so important and significant that it's told three times in the book of Acts. Luke tells it himself in Acts chapter 9. Then Paul tells it to a large crowd gathered at the temple in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22. And then Paul tells it again in Caesarea to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. Likewise, Luke thinks that Cornelius' conversion is just as important as significant because Luke gives 66 verses to the telling of this story. Nathan did a great job reading 23 of those for us this morning. We could have gone ahead and read the whole thing. That would have been 66 verses. This is the longest narrative in the book of Acts. And Luke reserves this amount of space. He devotes this amount of attention to the conversion of Cornelius. Um. And likewise, he actually, in these 66 verses, he narrates uh, the conversion twice. He, he tells the conversion of Cornelius in his own words uh, there in chapter 10, and then in Peter's words, he tells again the conversion of Cornelius in chapter 11 as Peter explains it to the Jerusalem church. Um, Grant Osborne, in his commentary on Acts, puts it this way. He says, these two conversion stories will change the history of the church and make it a mission, make its mission a worldwide movement. And so there's a reason this is the heart of the book. These, these two conversion stories are important. They're significant. And so we've spent plenty of time looking at the conversion story in chapter 9 of Saul. And now we're going to begin our journey here in chapter 10 to look at the conversion story of Cornelius. I've titled my lesson today, The Tale of Two Visions. The tale of two visions. Because what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 10 is that there's a double vision. It's kind of like seeing a double rainbow. And I think here the double vision tells us a couple of things. First, it tells us that this scene is doubly significant, which I've already hinted at. I've already touched on this point. There will be many Gentile conversion stories over the next two millennium, but this is the first one. It all starts right here, and so this is significant. Second, and this is, this is one that God just continues to teach me over and over again, but when it comes to conversion... When it comes to stories of conversion, you need to know something that's very true, but we don't always think about it, and it's this. This story tells us that God is at work in more ways than we know. I mean, you can count on this. God is always doing so much more than we think. You know, when I have an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus, on my end, I'm, I know what's going on on my end, right? And I know how much God is preparing me, preparing my heart, 
giving me words, helping me to be courageous. I know all the preparation that's going on my end, but what I've learned to believe is that God is also doing just as much preparation on the other end. Preparing the heart of the person to hear the message that I have to share. And that's what this story tells us. There's double preparation happening here. And that should really encourage us, you all, as we go out to share our life and the message, the good news of Jesus. This should encourage us that not only is God working here in us, but he's working in the ones who need to hear the message. And then third, there are two revolutionary ideas being presented in this story about Christianity. And each vision represents one of these ideas. So there's, there's going to be a takeaway from God's vision to Cornelius, and there's going to be a takeaway from God's vision to Peter. And here they are, those of you taking notes. Here they are. The takeaway from God's vision to Cornelius is that we're going to discover that God is making an exclusive claim through his vision. The vision that he gives Cornelius is that, that God is making an exclusive claim to us. We're going to talk about what that is. And then second, the second takeaway through God's vision to Peter is we're going to discover that God's making an inclusive call to us through that vision. So two very different takeaways, two very important messages, each one given through one of these two visions. One, that God is making an exclusive claim And the other, that he's making an inclusive call. He's doing both. Both are equally important to understand. In fact, they're two sides of the same coin and must always be presented together as one gospel. It's the combination of these two, of this exclusive claim and this inclusive call that makes Christianity unique and different from all other world religions. And so we're going to look at both of these. That's the outline of my lesson today. I want to begin first by looking at God's inclusive call that he makes clear through his vision to Peter in verses 9 through 23. And then I conclude by looking at God's exclusive claim that he makes clear through his vision to Cornelius in verses 1 through 8. So first, God makes an inclusive call through his vision to Peter. Now, I cannot overemphasize to you the difficulty for the Jews to hear the call to include the Gentiles into the people of God. I could sit here and talk about it for hours, and I wouldn't be able to emphasize it enough how difficult that was for the Jews to hear the call to include the Gentiles. Because for so long, they had been told by God not to mix with the Gentiles. Don't eat their food. Don't hang out with them. Don't marry them. 
Don't do what they do. In fact, their ancestors had been exiled in large part due to the fact that they had chosen to mix with the Gentiles. You know, I've been, I've been reading uh, through First and Second Samuel and the prophets uh, in my daily Bible reading, and it's just incredible, right? Anytime you read through the Old Testament, it's just exhibit A through Z of all the bad things that happened to Israel due in large part to their disobedience by choosing to mix with the Gentiles. So that's all their history. And Peter receives this vision. There's a large sheet that's let down from heaven by its four corners, and it contains all these animals and reptiles and and birds. And then the voice of the risen Lord Jesus commands Peter to get up, kill, and eat. And so Peter puts his bib on, and no, Peter's like, never, never. Now, in in the language here, it's, it's this combination of being both horrified and disgusted by such a command. He's offended that the risen Lord Jesus would ask such a thing. And the Lord Jesus replies, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Wow, I... Again, I just cannot emphasize to you how revolutionary this is. The implication is clear, though. What used to be impure, what used to be unclean, has now been made clean. In other words, the people who God once told you to avoid... At all cost, he now tells you to embrace. Well, this is a shocking turn of events. It's hard to have been told to do one thing for so long, and then now all of a sudden, you're being told to do the exact opposite. God had said, don't eat, and now he says, eat. God had said, don't interact, and now he says, embrace. It's hard to wrap your mind around it if you really put, them in, put yourself in their shoes. N.T. Wright, who is um, author and pastor, theologian, um, he gives a simple but great illustration to kind of help us to think about it. He writes this. He says, imagine a mother seeing her young child at the other side of the street about to cross a busy road. Let's imagine Nicholasville Road out here at 4 o'clock and all the lanes are changing and it's so confusing anyway. I've lived here 16 years and it's still hard to figure it all out. But is busy road, a mother's on one side, 
Her child's on the other side, and it looks like the child's about ready to cross, and so the mother urgently shouts, stop, stand still. Then, a minute later, the traffic comes to stop at a light. And now that the traffic has stopped at the light, she shouts again to her child, okay, now walk across. Very simple illustration. But here's the point that he's trying to make. The important thing to point out is that with these two commands, to stand still and to walk, the mother has not contradicted herself. The initial command to stand still was the right one for the time. In fact, it's because the mother wanted the child in the end to get across that she told him to stand still for the moment. If he hadn't, he wouldn't have made it across at all. And I really like that because it illustrates well, I think, how these dietary food laws and these restrictions, those, the, you know, those, the food laws were just some of the restrictions that were placed on the Jews to keep, to keep them from interacting with the Gentile nations. They were the right ones. They were, they were right ones for the time. They were the right commands. They were the right things that needed to be done at the time. But now with the coming of the Lord Jesus and with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the kingdom of God are being thrown open wide to everyone. Everyone is now welcome. You see, through Peter's vision, God is making an inclusive call. It includes everybody. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation. The people who God told them once to avoid, he now tells them to embrace. And as I've shared, Peter was hesitant. As any of us would have been in his shoes. Verse 16 reads that the vision had to happen three times because one time was not going to be enough. Because you know, as well as I do, if it had only occurred one time, Peter might have been able to convince himself that it really didn't happen. Maybe it was just a bad dream. But after the third time, Peter had to be like, okay, But that's what it's going to take for the Jews to include the Gentiles into the family of God. It even took, in verse 19, the Spirit speaking. So not only did the risen Lord Jesus give command in the vision for Peter to get up and eat, but in verse 19, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit speaks to him and says, go, some men are here to talk to you. So God's vision to Peter is all about an inclusive call to everyone. All right, that's the first vision. Now I want to talk about the other vision, God's vision to Cornelius. The vision to Cornelius is about an exclusive claim. Let me explain to you. Let me ask you a hypothetical question this morning. 
if you are in God's shoes and uh, you are getting ready to open up this whole thing to uh, the Gentiles, and you knew that the first one, the first convert was going to be a memorable one. He was going to have the longest narrative in the book of Acts. Then what kind of person would you want that first convert to be? It's the very first one. His story is going to be told over and over and over again. Everybody's going to know who Cornelius is. Now, as I've thought about that this week, I've wrestled with this. Would I have wanted him to be a scoundrel who becomes a saint? You follow me? Let me explain. Those tend to be my favorite conversion stories. You know the ones where someone was an ex-con or a former drug dealer or they used to be part of the cornbread mafia and they meet Jesus, and now they're on fire for the Lord, right? They're preaching and teaching everywhere they go. Those are my favorite kinds. Those are the good conversion stories, right? They just have you on the edge of your seats. You know, you could, you could make them into a good movie script. You know, as great as those kind of conversion stories are, they tend to be the exception, especially for any of us that have grown up in Christian homes. I grew up in a preacher's home. Then as someone who's also reared four kids in a preacher's home. Any of us who have grown up in a Christian family, you just you can't remember a time not knowing about Jesus Christ. And so you hear, I just speak for myself, so I hear the scoundrel, ex-con, former drug leader uh, kind of conversion stories, and I think, man, my story's pretty lame, (laughs) kind of boring. I mean, what kind of conversion story do I even really have to tell? Well, let me tell you about our guy, Cornelius. Listen, he was, what what the kids say, he was next level. He was the furthest thing possible from a scoundrel. In fact, he was a centurion. He was a military guy. And so, you know, Brent Allen's back with us. So glad to have him home. So he was a Brent Allen. He was a Logan Forrest who was up here sharing the communion communion thoughts with us this morning. You think about Brent, think about Logan, and you start to form a picture in your mind. These these higher-ranked military guys, they're intelligent, they're disciplined, they have great work ethic, they're high-character guys, they're incredible leaders. That's Cornelius. And in addition to this, just those general characteristics, listen to what else Luke says about him. Luke tells us that he and all his family were devout. That's quite a statement. 
Not only was he a man who was deeply religious, but Luke tells us that his wife and children were too. You see, that's what I'm talking about when I say next level. He's most likely this great husband and father as well. And Luke tells us he's a God-fearer. Now, this was a term used to describe Gentiles who believed and worshipped Yahweh. And so, he was not considered Jewish, but he was considered a God-fearer. And we learn later when his men arrived in verse 22 that he's respected by all the Jewish people. Now, the Jews were some of the toughest critics, especially of the Gentiles, especially of the Romans. And this centurion had won over the respect of all the Jews. I'm telling you, this guy Cornelius, he's the kind of guy if you have daughters, right? In addition, Luke tells us that Cornelius gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. In other words, he didn't just show up to the synagogue. He lived it out. Centurions, we know, were well-paid, and Cornelius generously shared what he had with the poor. Also, he has this rich prayer life. The language here indicates that he was a prayer warrior. It was a regular part of his life. In fact, the vision from God comes to him one day at 3 in the afternoon, which was one of the regular prayer times of the Jews. And if that's not enough, if I've not been able to give you a good enough picture of this man, in verse 4, the angel of God tells Cornelius that his prayers and gifts to the poor had been received by God as a memorial offering. So through the angel, God even expresses his pleasure in the good deeds and the acts of kindness of Cornelius. I mean, what else can I say about this guy? You know, if you recall back in chapter 9, I suggested Ananias was just an ordinary disciple, if you remember that. Well, Cornelius is far from ordinary. In fact, he's quite extraordinary. So why have this extraordinary person as your first Gentile convert? Why Cornelius? Well, simply put, it's because he represents the best of the best of the best of the Gentiles. You see, if he'd been a scoundrel, in our pride and in our smugness, we could have looked down on him and said, well, of course he needed Jesus. He was a mess. He was a complete disaster. But that's not me. I'm a pretty good dude. I grew up in a Christian home. I believe in God. I think about spiritual things. I look after my friends. I don't cheat. I don't steal. Now, don't get your feelings hurt or get too offended about what I'm about to say to you. 
But when God decided to throw open the doors of the kingdom and let everybody in, it wasn't a decision to become tolerant of everyone. Nor was it a decision just to accept everyone the way they are. Listen, I hope you see this. Here's my point this morning. If Cornelius needed Jesus, then I don't care who you are, but you better get in line. You see, God is making an exclusive claim with his vision to Cornelius. Here's how Peter described it in Acts chapter 4. He said, it's only by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God has raised from the dead. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. Church, it does not get more exclusive than that. Cornelius is this deeply religious, extremely generous, God-fearing and righteous man, yet he still needs Jesus to be saved. What is revealed to him in this vision is that the only way he was to be saved was to sin for Peter. Is going to come and introduce him to Jesus. I love uh, what William Willimon says in his commentary on Acts. Here's how he sums up God's message to Cornelius. I love this. Listen to this. Put this on the board when we get home. He says, possessing a good character, a moral lifestyle, and even spiritual sensitivity are not the same thing as possessing a saving faith in Jesus. Possessing a good character, possessing a moral lifestyle, even possessing spiritual sensitivity are not the same thing as possessing a saving faith in Jesus. God's Vision to Cornelius is about an exclusive claim. And so, it's a tale of two visions. And through this double vision, God is making an inclusive call and an exclusive claim. And listen, as difficult and as offensive as the inclusive call is to the Jews, the exclusive claim is just, a, just as difficult and offensive to the Gentiles. You hear me? As offensive as that message of that inclusive call of including the Gentiles, as hard and as offensive and as difficult as that was for the Jews, it's just as offensive, it's just as difficult for the Gentiles to hear there's only one way 
Much has been written about why Christianity in particular got in so much trouble with the Roman Empire. It's really quite fascinating to me to do all the reading of that history. Because Caesar didn't have any issue with the Jews because they were so exclusive. And Caesar didn't have any issue with any of the other religions of the day because they were so inclusive. But it was the combination of the Christian gospel that got Caesar's attention. It's when all of the centurions started being converted. You see, the gospel's good news, but it's doubly offensive. It will always be offensive to the religious. The religious will always be offended by the inclusive call that allows everyone in. And it will always be offensive to the world. The world will always be offended by the exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way. But the gospel is both. Inclusive call and an exclusive claim. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this double vision. I pray that this, you take this double vision and you put it on our hearts and that these two never become separated in our hearts and in our minds ever again. It's not a good thing to go in one of those, or, one of those directions or the other. We got to hold them together by the grace, by your grace. And so, thank you for this good news. Thank you for bringing us all together in the name of Jesus Christ. For his glory and for his worship, we give him praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to offer an invitation to anybody here who, who perhaps you've been on one side of that or the other because I've talked with both. I've, I've had opportunities in my life to share the gospel with, with people, and I, I, I've, I've sat across the table from, from both. They're the folks that think they've just done too, much, too many bad things. They've messed up too much. They've made too many mistakes. Surely they find themselves way outside of the reach of God's grace. Let me tell you, Jesus Christ has come and thrown open the doors of the kingdom. You're welcome here. You're never too far outside of God's grace and his reach. But then perhaps you've been on the other side. I've sat across from those folks too. They're pretty good where they sit. They've, they haven't killed anybody. They haven't done any, you know, they've been, they've been faithfully married. They haven't, they can't point to any thing they've done too bad. They're actually, they've, they feel, they feel pretty good, and they, you know, they go to church on Easter. And 
Listen, the gospel is not about your character. It's not about you having the right moral lifestyle. It's not about you even doing the right things. It's about a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if you used to be a part of the corn mafia or if you're Cornelius. The only place that we meet is at the foot of the cross and placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And this morning, if you've never done that, if you've never put your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to come and do that today. Be baptized into him. Let's stand together and sing.